rested in the I'm ready for my cuffs up. I should come up sometimes, see me. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Pretty sure. Stuff that dreams are made of. Hi, Wendy here. Before we start off our episode today, I want to remind everybody to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Also, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on social media by simply searching Silver Screen Time Machine, and please make sure you follow our podcast, Silver Screen Time Machine, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review. And today we have on our show, Brian. Hello, Brian. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Brian is owner of Row House Cinema and also now, what, Row House Hollywood. Yeah, so we call it Row House Cinemas. Oh, sorry. My apologies. Now that there's two locations. Ah, yes, that makes sense. And I believe the Hollywood is now closed for renovations for a period of time. That is correct. Yeah, and I really have to say I appreciate what you do for the local historic theaters, Brian, a lot. And you show a lot of really wonderful art house films and classic films and different films that you don't get to see very frequently. So that's really wonderful. We really appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoy it. Yeah. Row House is in Lawrenceville, so go check that out sometime. They have, like I said, a lot of great films. They have a website. Check out what they got going on. We could talk about some upcoming things, but this show isn't going to air for two weeks, <laughs> so we might be out of the range by then, but you always have classic films and so forth showing there, so just check it out. But today, we are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to 1939, and we are going to talk about... Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. Yeah, yeah. my French is a little off. Yeah, thank you so much for picking one that had so many lovely French names to try <laughs> yeah, to pronounce. <laughs> I have a hard enough time pronouncing the American names, and now I've got to pronounce all these French ones. I wrote them all out phonetically, so we'll see how I do. I'm glad you did. That's yes, fantastic. I'm gonna. we're going to give it our best shot here. Please, mm-hmm. no French people get angry with with us, please. So let's start out talking about Sean Renoir. I think he's so interesting because, first of all, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but he's actually the son of the painter Renoir, the mm-hmm. famous painter, which I didn't even realize when I started doing this research. Yeah, he's, I mean, obviously from a huge pedigree of artists, but artists, I yeah. mean, he is consistently considered one of the best directors of all time. Yeah. And his films are always in the top 100 of movies made from all time. So I've always been curious. I've seen one of his films. I saw uh, Grand Illusion. But I was always curious about his other films. Yeah, and this film, possibly a lot of people think his best, actually. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of background about Sean. He served and was wounded in World War I. He was shot in the leg by a bullet, and he would wind up limping for the rest of his life. He actually plays a character in this film. You can, if you pay attention, see him limping. His leg just narrowly avoided being amputated. Mm. And then actually when he recovered, he then joined the Air Force because he just didn't have enough of being in the armed forces. And Mm. that's where he learned photography. I found it very strange that he was only nominated for one Oscar in his career, a 1946 Best Director for The Southerner, which I'm not familiar with that particular film. But Mm -hmm. yeah, such a great director, but yet one Oscar nomination only. I think the foreign film directors had a harder time getting nominated. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that if most people list their favorite directors, he's not mentioned because yeah. it's not that he's forgotten. It's just he's not in that same consideration as an American director would yeah. be or Japanese even. Yeah, or even Italian, Fellini and stuff. But, you mm-hmm. know, even Fellini was never given an Academy Award. 
This film, he's doing, this is basically the beginning of World War II. Mm-hmm. And he sort of makes this film that's a satire on French society at the time, saying how French society was kind of being frivolous in a time when it's not the time to be frivolous. And a quote I like is that, we are dancing on a volcano. Mm-hmm. So that's a reference to the frivolity of the upper class French people when the war with Germany is clearly imminent. The cinematographer, Sean Bachelet, I really enjoyed the cinematography. They did a lot of really cool, innovative techniques in this film. He started as a newsreel cameraman. There's a lot of long takes. There's a lot of deep focus technique, which is something that was allegedly said to have been pioneered by Orson Welles, which this film, what year is this film? 1939? Mm -hmm. Clearly a a year before Citizen Kane, and they're using this deep focus technology. One of the things I always complain about is that I like Orson Welles, but he gets credited for things that he didn't innovate, Mm -hmm. and that's frustrating. But in this, a lot of deep focus technique. A deep focus technique for anybody that isn't aware or hasn't listened to the Citizen Kane podcast is basically when you have focused on items that are in the front of the shot, in the middle of the shot, and the back of the shot. You can see people in the back and the front equally in focus, mm-hmm. which was really innovative. Required special lenses that would give you considerable depth. The depth of field shot allowed Renoir to shoot large rooms and long corridors, which you see a lot in the chateau sequences. You see them down the long corridors a lot. And it enables the characters to move freely around while not having to do cuts on the camera, which is why he did all those long takes. And also another thing they did a lot of is camera movement. You'll see the camera moving a lot. And again, not super common in 1939, but there's a lot of shots where the camera moves. It stops. It changes direction. There's places where it circles around the subjects. So again, you don't have to make cuts. You can just change the view of the camera without making cuts. Yeah, it felt like it was done in a single take kind of feel to it. I mean, I'm sure there was 100 takes per shot, but it felt so seamless because of that camera movement. And yeah, and the long takes, that creates a real feeling of seamlessness. And to piggyback onto that, as far as seamless cuts go, we can also talk about the editor on the film, which was Marguerite Renoir. And you may say, oh, who is she? Was she related to him? Well, no, she was a film editor. She met Jean. They wound up working on a lot of films together and they became romantically involved, but they would never get married. But she said, I don't care about that. I'm still going to take your name. And she (laughs) chose to be called Margaret Renoir even though they were not married. An interesting thing about her was she was a communist Mm -hmm. and also sort of influenced Jean politically. And that's why you see a lot of political takes in his 30s films. And I think it caused him to be not especially popular as well, unfortunately. Yeah, this film, when it came out, did pretty terrible, I think. um, You hear about bad receptions, but this thing was like... Not popular. (laughs) No, (laughs) the way they said what people did, we'll talk about that shortly. But another difference some edits that are different is in the hunting scene. There's a lot of rapid edits. You'll see those really quick shots with the rapid edits. Very different from the rest of the film. It's a totally different style, just the hunting scene by itself. There's really no score on this film. There's a little bit of an overture. There's a finale, but all the music sources come from within the film, like if he's playing the record player or if musicians are playing, that's where the rest of the music comes. I didn't even notice that. That's interesting that you mentioned it. Sometimes the score is something you don't hear. It can be there and you don't pay attention to it because you're Mm -hmm. so focused on the film. But in this case, it literally wasn't there. So Mm -hmm. anyhow, I guess we could talk a little bit about some of the actors, if we can say their names. Mm -hmm. The main actress, Christine, she's played by Nora Gregor. She was an Austrian. There's a lot of interesting things with all these actors because they were, again, about to be into World War II and these people are in France. So Mm -hmm. after they make this film, their lives become extremely affected because they are at war with 
with Germany, and it changes everybody's lives around. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff about and after the actors. this is yes. after Austria already forgot what they call it when they merged, yeah. quote unquote, merged with Germany. Um, Did they say when they annexed? It, it, there's a name for it, a special name, because it wasn't quite. Yeah, annexed, my, so. I confess to knowing film history. I do not confess to knowing world okay. history. Yeah, I, 1938, Austria became part of Germany, whether it liked it or not. Yeah. Not through evasion, though. And uh, this actress was Austrian, Nora Gregor. Just to interrupt you, she was more than just Austrian. Her romantic partner, then husband, was in charge of Austria. He was a prince. Yeah, he was a prince, and then he was also the political Vice leader at the, at the moment. He used to also financially back Hitler early on oh. until he realized that Hitler was not the person he thought it was going to be. Oh, well, good. So, I'm, but I'm glad he changed his mind. He did, but nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> he changed his mind a lot. But it was just interesting, of, like, she's Jewish, too. Yeah, so he was the vice chancellor of Austria. She was his mistress before she was his wife. He was Mm -hmm. married when he first got involved with her, and he pretty much told the wife to hit the road, and then he married her. Like we said, his name is Prince. He has a very long name. I think Mm -hmm. we can just call him Prince Ernst, because Mm -hmm. to me that would be a lot easier to say. He has a whole bunch of names. We don't need to say all the names. But I think it's important to talk about that real-life history, because how different is that than what happens in the film, right? Right. And what Renoir happened to go over to Vienna, he was looking for an actress to play Christine. He was actually going to see another actress, and he wound up just casually running into Nora and Prince Ernst, and he wound up making friends with them. I think I think he had a bit of a crush on Nora. He seemed to be very fond of her, but he... Again, not, how's that different than the film? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, I don't know. it's just running parallels here for us. <laughs> too much. Yeah, and then they wound up having to flee to France because Austria, you know, as you said, Austria was taken over. Obviously, the vice chancellor, he had to split. Mm -hmm. So they fled to France. And when they came to France, he cast her as Christine in this film. The sad thing about it is eventually they also had to flee France because of the Germans. Mm -hmm. And they went to South America in the early 40s. And they actually got cut off from all their money and wound up living in poverty. And they say she may have committed suicide um, at age 47. But some people dispute it and say she died of natural causes. I don't know Mm -hmm. what could be possibly a suicide and possibly natural causes, but I couldn't find her actual cause of death. So Mm. yeah, I'm not really sure, but that was pretty sad. Her husband in this film, Robert the Marquis de Lachenay. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I wrote it out out phonetically. Anyhow, he was played by a fellow named Marcel DeLeo. This fellow was also Jewish, this mm-hmm. actor. He was Jewish. Actually, he plays a Jewish character in this film. He actually had a good career. He was forced to flee France with his wife in 1940, again, because of the Germans. The Germans would actually put up pictures of him and says, this is what a Jew looks like. No, really. Pictures of his face. Yeah. Like, there you go. Horrible. Yeah. So they obtained exit visas to Chile, which is sort of like Casablanca-like, isn't it? They got their exit visas yeah, Argentina and to Chile. Chile. Um, unfortunately, they turned out to be forgeries. Oh, wow. So when they got there, there was a big problem, but they eventually made it to the United States via Canada. And Marcel would have many bit roles in American films, including he's in Casablanca, believe it or not. Oh, yeah? He plays the courier named Emile. He doesn't have a lot of scenes. The only reference is when one guy wins a bunch of money and then he comes out, he has to ask Rick for more money. He says, I'm so sorry, Mr. Rick. I don't know what happened. And Rick says, don't worry about it and signs him a check. But that's him. That's Marcel DeLeo. His wife was also in Casablanca. She plays Yvonne, who is the woman that Rick is trying to get rid of that keeps trying to hang around and bug him. Oh, so Genevieve? No, his real life wife. That was his real life wife? No, his real life wife, whoever his real life wife is, played Yvonne. 
Oh, okay. In Casablanca. Oh, got it, got yeah, it, got yeah. it. I know that was confusing. Yeah. I, it would be nice if I had the name of his real life wife, but then I would have had to say another French name. So <laughs> I had to just call him wife. Also, he was in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He played the judge. He was very funny in that. And he had numerous appearances in his career, including in To Have and To Have Not, The Sun Also Rises, and Pillow Talk. So mm. he had a lot of little bit roles. He had a very successful career, even in America. I would like to mention the costumes in this film are by Coco Chanel. So these are all Chanel, all right. yeah, which is some of the costumes are very beautiful, especially the ones that Christine wears, those sort of silken mm-hmm. uh, long dresses, I think are very pretty. And this this is also loosely based on a play by Musset. It's a play called Le Caprice de Marianne. It's a play that Renoir based this on. It's also sort of based very loosely on the marriage of Figaro. Mm-hmm. They well, said, yeah, there's a reference to it in the beginning of the yeah, film. Yeah, only one third of the script was completed and the rest was just a detailed outline because Renoir wanted his actors to be able to improvise and he also wanted to adjust the roles. Like, for example, when Nora was brought on, he adjusted the role a little bit to fit her and then he was not supposed to be in the film. Mm-hmm. His brother, Pierre, was supposed to play Octave, but they had some delays in the production in the beginning because he wanted to shoot out outside. There was a lot of rain. It kept getting delayed and the brother said, hey, Hey, I have a play I got to go do. And then he just said, well, I'll just I'll just play the role. And then he again had to adjust the script to fit him. He was my favorite actor in the film. Yeah, he's, he's really funny. good. He's yeah. really good. He doesn't do a bad job at all. You kind of think, oh, a director playing a role. Anyhow, so that's the notes I have on the crew. Do you have anything you wanted to mention about the crew in particular? No, I thought, I mean, you kind of covered the basis. I thought it was really interesting that he went out of his way to cast Jews in this film and had one of the characters be Jewish in the movie and not just a character, but like the leading... The lead character. Lead lead character, the host. And I thought it was really interesting, especially at that time period. France is kind of historically famous for not being as open-armed as you would hope for Jews, um, especially from like the late 1800s and up to World War II. Pretty bad, actually. So I think that was the final nail in the coffin for Renoir for this film. But I also loved it because it it really was his way of... Yeah, and he even at one point in the film has the servants talking in a very anti-Jewish way. And I think that's what he was trying to say, like, this is the attitude of French people. Yeah, it was all nonsensical, too. Like, it was all stuff you would hear today of like, wait, what? That makes no sense. Like, what are you talking about kind of response? He wasn't afraid to put that in, though. You know, show that the way they were against the Jews. All right, so shall we get into the story? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we start out with a radio broadcast. They're covering this fellow, André Jurier. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. <laughs> I know, I'm so proud of myself when I say it. <laughs> this fellow was making the trip across the Atlantic. I guess he's like the second coming of Charles Lindbergh, I suppose. I thought that was kind of funny, too, because yep. they, they start off this film subtly. Like, 10 years ago, Charles Lindbergh made this thing. I mean, so much happened in 10 years in aviation. Yeah. Especially leading up to 1939, that yeah. the fact that this guy flew across the Atlantic, it's like, <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, you think by now other people. <laughs> yeah, everyone's done it by now. Yeah. And it's just, I thought that was like really funny that like, but everyone was going ballistic. Yeah, and like, they were this all is excited. Like, yeah, this is the like national sh- hero. Shoving through the police. Yeah, he was. Exactly. And I thought he was like making fun of 
France like right off the bat. Oh, I think he was. I think he was making fun of France throughout the entire film, which is probably why it didn't resonate too well with the French (laughs) audiences. Just a thought. But then he gets out of the plane and you'd think he'd be real excited, but he's upset. We see Octave comes up and greets him. Renoir plays him. And you'd think he would be excited, but he's all upset because somebody isn't there. A lady isn't there. He doesn't name her per se at the time, but Mm -hmm. he even gets on the radio and says how he's so disappointed because this lady didn't show up that he did this for her mm-hmm. and that was one of the first violations of the rules of the game he's being indiscreet right he's saying you expect discretion the upper class of the french they expect discretion right mm-hmm. you're not supposed to publicly talk about your affairs yeah i mean like first i didn't realize that i mean you don't know she's you married. don't know who it is yeah. well and you don't even know who he's talking about at yeah. first because you just see the scene and you're like huh what's going on yeah I just thought it was like normal love kind of stuff. Yeah, but then he cut to Christine and you become aware that probably this is who he's talking (laughs) about just based on the fact that it cuts directly to her and she's listening to the radio and she just acts like she doesn't really care about Mm -hmm. him and his exploits and what's going on. And she has this conversation with her maid about men and the maid has this very sort of French take on men and relationships and basically you can't have friendships with men. Men are basically only good for being lovers and they're replaceable. This is her attitude the maid has. The maid's name is... Lizette. Lizette, played by Paulette Dubuist. I can't say that one because I didn't spell it out. This actress, just as an aside, lived to be 100 years old. Nice. Good yeah, for her. Yeah, good for her. Probably because of that French attitude she yeah. had. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know if she may have had a different attitude in real life. But I don't yeah. know, based off of everyone else who is in this play, this is their real life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things she, I noted, she said that this movie was really, really fun to make. She had a really good time making this film. Mm-hmm. And we're also in this first scene, it's sort of implied that she's had some involvement with Octave. Maybe she's had a fling with him, etc. So, yeah, they flirt throughout the movie. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this maid is, takes anybody she can get, I think. Well, she's a tease. Yeah. Well, is she a teaser? I think she's doing, and she's doing more than teasing, I think. But... <laughs> Yeah, she's a little bit of... And, and meanwhile, she's also married. And that, that's going to come into play later on as well. Mm-hmm. So then we see the husband, Robert, played by Marcel Dalio. And so Robert... <laughs> Robert's an interesting character. Mm-hmm. He's kind of this very disinterested member of the gentry, I guess. He's a marquis, so he's a nobleman. But he has this affection for mechanical toys. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And he seems very involved with his mechanical toys, more so than, for example, his wife. Awkward. Racist mechanical toys. Yeah, too. Uh, yeah I know. I was going to say, doesn't the film doesn't hold up well today? Some of these toys are yeah. not. Yeah. I, I think it does actually. I think that was. Do you? Yeah, because I think this is a social criticism. It's. Oh. Why can't it also criticize the fact that even the Jew in there is racist? Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, we obviously don't know the intention, but yeah, yeah, some people could find some of these toys offensive, possibly. But I feel like it's an interesting difference between Robert and Andre, because with the two sort of people competing for Christine, that Robert is sort of in the past, he's in love with these old mechanical toys and this music and stuff, whereas Andre also likes mechanical toys, but they're modern things like a plane. Mm. So it's a kind of an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, Robert comes across as just happy in his own skin. And yeah, like you said, indifferent towards all the silliness. 
Yeah, he just wants to live in this world of mechanical mm-hmm. toys, I feel like. I don't mm-hmm. think he wants to really necessarily deal with all these people that he has to deal with, like his whole staff and all this. I feel like this is something that he has to do, but it's not really what he yeah, wants he to do. Yeah, he doesn't care. And I think he has a little bit of an insecurity, and I think it stems from the fact that he is Jewish. And mm-hmm. you see a lot of, when he's talking to other people, these over-the-top gestures and this blustering, this sort of big stuff trying to make himself look important. And I think that's sort of hiding an, an insecurity. That's the impression mm. I got from him. Yeah, when his love of mechanical toys, when he showed off his grand finale oh, toy. Oh yeah, that's really I, interesting. That scene, the acting in that was incredible. Yes. I watched it twice actually because his facial expressions, his expressions, yeah, were so. It was just so well captured. It felt real, where he was clearly excited like a little kid, yep. embarrassed to embarrassed. tell everyone, mm-hmm. but didn't care anyways. He was going to do it yeah. and just enthusiastic. It was just really exciting to see. Yeah, it's sort of like, here's my toy, please like it and please like me. There's a humbleness to it, a pride mm-hmm. and a humbleness simultaneously, which yeah. is really and a passion. hard to I liked, I liked. I liked him. He was my favorite character other than Renoir's Octel. Yeah, so. actually, Robert was my favorite character. Yeah. I think Marcel, the actor, just really makes you love this character for some reason. Actually, Renoir said that was the best scene he ever shot, that one you just talked oh, about. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's he said, funny. Of all his career, that was the best scene he ever shot, that one you just mentioned. Okay, yeah, yeah. It felt like when you see someone in real life talk about what they're passionate about in a true way you get excited for them and it felt that way yeah like it really came across i'm glad you mentioned that because that's a really great scene so robert and christine they're talking about obviously they've all heard on the radio what happened Mm -hmm. and everybody knows apparently that andre is talking about christine that's Mm -hmm. a well-known fact among the whole society because i guess she's been palling around with him or something and everybody knows about that Mm -hmm. so robert is kind of like, well, you know, you have your friends and if he mistakes that for something else, that's on him. I mean, he doesn't say those exact words, but that's his impression. And she's really happy he said that because it does seem that she only has a friendship for him mm-hmm. and that he's taken it into his head. The French are so passionate. I love her. He was so very strong. No, he's such a, Andre is such a one-dimensional character. Yeah, that very, and such a romantic type character. Yeah, over the, like, I don't know if that kind of person exists in real life. Maybe they do. They, I, they might in France because I feel like the French are very romantic. <laughs> romantic and yeah. very passionate. Well, you see this type of character often in movies Yeah, where he's willing to die and kill himself Yes, yes. for this potential love. Yeah, exactly. So Robert is basically saying, yeah, I think, and she gets happy because she realizes that he knows that she's not, he trusts her. And then mm-hmm. she says, well, I trust you too. And then we see, well, wait a second, I have to go make a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> and we find out that Robert has a lady on the side and her name is Genevieve. She is played by Mila Parlay. This lady also lived to be 94. Yeah. So there's something about the women that played the side roles they on this right. film. Yeah, they, they got it right. They did a good job of living. So he calls her up on the phone to basically tell her, I need to talk to you because he wants to end it because now his wife trusts him and he wants to live up to that trust, I guess, now. Mm-hmm. And so he tells her he wants to end things. And she's talking in this room with a bunch of men playing cards like these society men. And I think it's interesting because you can see right here, if you watch this film, this is a really good example of the deep focus. You see the men in the front playing the cards and you see her in the background talking on the phone and you can see them both in focus. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for deep focus, that's a good place to look but you can see that many times in this film and I'll point out a couple other ones as well Mm -hmm. so Robert and John Viev they wind up getting together and talking and he breaks it off with her and I thought it was interesting that did you notice he tries to (laughs) yeah yeah she doesn't really she's like nah no that's not happening yeah she doesn't really care for it but did you notice that they're both standing next to Buddha statues I didn't know as they're talking literally
literally, they're both almost directly next to a Buddha statue. And I wonder, is that symbolism? Buddha is kind of deep, wise, moral. They're very shallow, frivolous, immoral. Is he making a contrasting statement there? One never knows. I just always see these little things and wonder. Yeah, maybe. It couldn't be a coincidence that they're both standing next to a Buddha statue. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you would agree, but I saw Genevieve almost like a pair with Andre. And maybe I've watched too many movies like romantic comedies, which is kind of is, that those two would have gotten together because they're both these one-dimensional passion. Yeah. Well, they suggest that they get together they later on. They at it, but they never... They never do. No, yeah, because they're too busy obsessing about the people that don't want them. Yeah. Yeah, he tries to break it off. It doesn't seem like she really takes him very seriously, but I guess mm -hmm. she goes long for the moment. But then you get a shot of Octave and Andre. Now you realize that Octave and Andre are great friends. They're buddies. Mm -hmm. This is when... <laughs> Andre is so full of despair that he wishes to kill himself. And he just decides, well, Octave is in the car, too. I might as well just drive us both into a tree. No mm -hmm. problem. Don't worry about that. There's another person there. Mm -hmm. So he drives them into a tree. And of course, as you can imagine, Octave is a little annoyed that, you know, mm -hmm. his life is put in jeopardy just because Andre couldn't get his woman, you know, and he wants to kill himself. But you'll see, too, that these two, they're not upper class characters. They're definitely simpler people. They have simpler clothes. They don't have the very fancy dress of Robert and the gentry. And they also more vital, more passionate, like we said about Andre. They care more, they're more interested, and they're not like so nonchalant like Robert and Christine. But it also says when they talk to each other, they use the familiar form of you mm -hmm. in French. So French has a familiar form of you and a formal form of you. And they address each other with the familiar. But whereas the upper class people, they talk with the formal you. Even Robert says it to his wife. Mm -hmm. So it's just a difference there. And there's a lot of different angles throughout this particular scene. You see low angles and different angles when Octave and Andre are talking here. Again, another thing, Citizen Kane has always talked about the low angles oh they pioneered that mm -hmm. it's being done here in this film it's done in many films before that but maybe you could say it was more pioneering for an american film perhaps it was pioneering for an american film set in california on the subject of a biography of a very rich <laughs> famous billionaire that's very specific mm -hmm. very that's specific what, that was its first <laughs> yeah because i mean it's just you always hear this and the more films i see the more i'm like oh look they're doing this in this film they're mm -hmm. doing this in this film so it wasn't exactly it's maybe a little perfected and Citizen Kane. But anybody who really wants to hear more about that can listen to our Citizen Kane podcast because we mm -hmm. do have a Citizen Kane podcast. So do you think that the upper class folk treated Andre and Octave differently. differently because of that. They clearly treated the staff like yeah, staff. Yeah, they don't quite fit in. I mean, they treat Andre with respect as a hero, but he's not really one of them. And Oct The movie doesn't respect him. Like, no. And Octave is also, he's like a friend of all of theirs, but he's not really one of them. You can see they're outsiders. A good example, which I have later, is when he's walking around trying to get people to take off his bear suit. Mm, yeah, no one's willing to give him the... Right, nobody's willing to help him. Right. Yeah, they're different. So Octave says, hey, Andre, I'll get you hooked up with Christine. Don't you fret, you know, stop trying to kill yourself. Stop driving me into trees. I'll go, I'll go help you out. So he goes to visit Robert and Christine. And apparently we find out that Octave was a great friend of Christine's from when they were younger and they both live in Salzburg. And you can see she's much more animated with him than she's with anybody else in the film. Actually, they say he's one of the people that Robert does use the familiar you with is Octave, mm -hmm. unlike everybody else in the film. And in a way, 
Yeah, he goes through all the people. He's involved with the staff, right? He's mm -hmm. has an involvement with Lissette. He's friends with the gentry. He's also friends with Andre. So he's like in every level of the film. That's why I liked him. He was fun because he was like a floater in life as well as right. through the society. But he clearly didn't do anything for a living. Yeah, he doesn't really belong in any particular class, but he's accepted by all the classes. Accepted, but not perhaps considered one of them. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's kind of an entry point for the audience, too. Mm -hmm. You kind of follow Octave throughout the film, in a way. Yeah, yeah he would be a good politician. <laughs> He's very good at manipulating these people as well. He knows mm -hmm. how to deal with them. He manipulates Christine into asking Andre to come to their country house. Mm -hmm. La yeah. Colonia. So like the yeah. colony. I wonder what that translates to. In my mind, just, yeah. I was, felt like I was reading the word the circus. But you yeah, know, it but I, I think it's that house, that chateau they go to. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, so he's trying to convince them to, they're having a party at the chateau when they're inviting all mm -hmm. their friends and he wants them to invite Andre. And he winds up getting them to both agree to it. Using different tactics on both Christine and Robert, you see the different tactics he uses depending on who he's talking to. You know, I, I think that set up the movie perfectly, too, because it's like, one, why would you have to go through all this effort to get a friend invited to a party? And after he's convinced the wife, he still had to go convince Gets the, the uh, husband. Right. Well, he's the head of the household. I guess. Yeah, this so. is noble France. <laughs> yeah. So right. it just felt like so excessive and silly, the whole process. Well, I mean, technically, Andre Ray is not a friend of, yeah, of a Robert. Sure. I mean, he's trying to steal the. He's declared his love for his wife. So, yeah, they kind of don't want him there. So, he did have to do a little bit of work to get that figured out. You see in the rooms with Robert, you see a lot of instruments on the wall, which I think is interesting. I feel mm. like another thing where it symbolizes Robert is just in this sort of old world that isn't very modern or current. And I don't think he wants to be in a modern, current world, to be honest. Well, harping back to the marriage Figaro. I mean, that's the Louis the 16th time period of Marie Antoinette and all that kind of stuff yeah. where Versailles was set up as an institution to control France. And it did it by getting the nobility to squabble with each other. And during that time period of about 100 years or 50 years, whatever that was, they forgot about the country of France and yeah. just worried about their own little world. Yeah. So it sounds familiar. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like maybe that's what Robert was kind of yeah, you get the sense that he's back in the 1800s. He's not really mm -hmm. with us in the 19... When does this take place? Is no, this supposed it to take place yeah. in modern day, it 1939? Does. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next thing they do is drive to the country house, and then you get some of the great camera shots here. They actually can track the cars driving up to the estate, which, mm. again, not a lot of people were doing this sort of thing in 1939, I, I don't think. It's some beautiful shots that they do. Yeah, it's hard to put that in context, too. If the normal viewer watches it today, it would just seem normal to right, them. Right, correct. They don't realize how... Innovative it was at yeah, the time. Yeah, unusual that yeah. is. But it's that the fact that it feels so normal to someone. How many years ago did this come out? Like 85 years ago? Yeah. The fact that it feels so normal after 85 years of film, it's a compliment to how good it oh, is. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I thought it was amazing when I saw those panning shots. Like they drive the car along for quite some time, showing them driving up to the house and the camera mm -hmm. just follows right along with them. When you think about that time frame, it's quite a 
quite impressive. The exterior shots are shot on location at Salonia. Interior shots were set in the studio. It's the Schoenville Studios. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to be at the location, this Salonia, because he said that his father always had wanted to go and paint there because mm-hmm. he thought it was very beautiful and he never got the opportunity. So that's why he specifically wanted to shoot there. And this is where the exterior scenes of the forest and so forth are taken there. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we come up, we we meet a new character. We meet Schumacher, which is the husband of Lisette, right? He's mm-hmm. sort of the gamekeeper. And right off the bat, you get the impression that Robert doesn't like this guy. Mm-hmm. Because the poor guy's just trying to say, oh, my wife is here. I want to I spend time with my wife or whatever he's asking him. And he's pretty much like, no, to everything he's saying. And then mm-hmm. he's telling him ridiculous, impossible orders. Get rid of all the rabbits, but don't put up any fences. Because mm-hmm. the fellow suggests if we had some fences up, it might do a better job of keeping the rabbits out. He's like, no fences and get rid of every rabbit on the estate. Mm-hmm. And it's just, <laughs> even yeah. the guy's like, whoa, how do you expect me to do that? Yeah, you know? no one likes this character. Nobody likes him. Schumacher. And this guy is probably the most morally upright character in the entire film, which is probably a statement of why nobody likes him. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's yeah he's also yeah he's very anal and very by the book and... yeah I mean he's trying to do his job to the best of his ability he wants to be with his wife he wants to take care of his wife and it's just like he's technically the most moral character mm-hmm. everybody else is immoral he's the only truly moral character in the film and everybody hates him and he's despised mm-hmm. so yeah I think it's another Renoir statement on France society and then you also see this another character Marceau he's the poacher. Mm. Robert likes this this fellow. So they, mm-hmm. they're going around the grounds. I guess they're doing a little... He's looking around the grounds with Schumacher, and they run across this rabbit that's been poached. They, they see the poacher, Marceau. He's poaching rabbits to eat, living off the land, but he's living off technically their land. And mm-hmm. Schumacher gets real angry about it. But then Robert is like, oh, no, you know, he likes this Marceau. And he takes him under his wing and he's like, you can come work for me and this and that. And I don't know where Robert likes him because I feel like Marceau is very sneaky, kind of. He's slimy, but yeah, I think he's the, I feel like there's a clear... Parallel, parallel between the staff and, and yes, the, the there rich is a, folk. Yeah, there is going to be. And then, you know, you could pair the characters yes, up with each other. That's absolutely right. And yeah, he, I mean, they like each other because they are each other. Yes. They're just the, the different class version of each other. Right. There's a pattern mm-hmm. here in both sets that repeats. We have the husband and the wife. We have the lover and we have the interceding friend. With the upper class, you have Robert and Christine. And then you have Andre, that's the lover. And you have Octave, that's the interceding friend. Whereas with the servants, you have Schumacher and Lisette, that's the husband and wife. You have Marceau, that's the lover. And then you have actually Robert, that's the interceding friend that intercedes Mm -hmm. for Marceau. So they are matched. And it's funny because the sets are kind of flipped because in the upper class set, the husband is the one that's unfaithful. The wife is the virtuous one. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the lower class set, the husband's the virtuous one. The wife is the unfaithful one. So they're kind of flipped around. But mm-hmm. they're supposed to be mirrored. He did that intentionally. Just the working class version of the yeah. edit. Yeah, it's just work- going to show 
servants are just the same as the upper class. I mean, it's all the same thing. Do you thing. think one was it's trying to... It's all human nature in yeah. France. <laughs> they were mimicking each other, or he's just saying this it is was, all society? I it's just that's the way the classes worked in France, and the nobility and the servants, they're all the same. I think that's what he was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes into the chateau, the guests start to arrive. You have a lot of interesting guests here. I thought it was really interesting, because one of the guests is actually gay, mm-hmm. a gay man, which I think was also very interesting to be putting in a film in 1939 as a character, as a clear gay character, which I thought was really cool. So all these guests have arrived and then Andre comes to the chateau and you'll see this is one of those times when they do the circular pan of the camera when he first comes in. You start out by looking at Christine and then it goes around her to face him coming in. So you don't see her face right when he walks in mm-hmm. and then Octave comes forward and then she greets him and then all the other guests come rushing forward to greet him and he's like he's a big hit. Hero. He's the big yeah. hero. He's the celebrity. Uh, he, just, he just went across the uh, Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's the big, just, the big French hero. Just to hero. put this in perspective, we had bombers at this point that could fly halfway across the world. But that's okay. That's okay. It was, it was just, <laughs> Let him have his moment. (laughs) But one of the things I will mention about Andre, the actual actor that played Andre, Roland Touton, Mm -hmm. he was actually an avid hobby aviator and also an acrobat. So this was a really nice role for him. Apparently, he was very familiar with airplanes and liked to fly around in airplanes anyway. Like I said, you have another guest as well. This He's going to come into play a little bit later. His name is San Oban. He's kind of this gossipy guy. And then there's also a general there as well. Yeah, it's so, he was, it's so funny. He became such an important character later. San Oban, yeah. Yeah, that I had to like... I. Didn't know you who he was. Who was yeah. yeah, I have no idea. Who, I still don't know. Like, he's yeah. this guy. But he's always making these little gossipy comments throughout the film. And, and he's this guy you don't really especially like. Oh, and then Christine makes this big speech about mm. how, in front of everybody, about how her and Andre are just friends. Remember? She makes this oh, big, huge bold. speech. I kind of liked how bold that was. Yeah, yeah, so she makes this huge speech. But then what's also interesting in the speech is that you can see Robert and Octave in the background. And Robert is making all these different facial expressions as she's saying all these these things. So she tells everybody this and she's like, I've got it off my chest. Everybody knows now what the real story was. But then you get the sense that the guests don't believe anything she's saying. As a matter of fact, that son of Ben, he makes some sort of comments. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, nobody really believes her anyway, even though I think she is telling the truth. You think she is? I can't tell because she starts off as this yeah, she, um, she she maintains throughout the beginning of the film that she's n- not interested in this guy other than a friend. And she does seem to be committed to her husband through to a certain point. Yeah, and in, and then at that certain point. Well, like, then she just goes ballistic. Yeah, and she's, she's just like, like yeah. so, but, and then she's like, well, did, did she just, believe anybody. that? She, yeah. Yeah, she's just like, anybody, everybody. Yeah, she told me she loved me. Yeah, I'm like, know, I'm yeah. not even in this movie. I'm <laughs> everybody like, and their mother, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, and then there's this scene with the servants having dinner. And then you see the servants are very mimicking They are having dinner just the way the upper class people have the dinner. Mm -hmm. And they're saying these things about the upper class saying, can you believe that Madame, they call her Madame, Mm -hmm. is seating Andre on her right? That's so inappropriate and this Mm -hmm. and that. And and Lisette is always sticking up for Madame because she loves Madame. And then that's when there is that talk about Robert and him being Jewish and how they make these statements and look down on him about that. That is in that scene. And then what happens then is that... 
Schumann share comes down. He wants to see Lisette. And she is always just like, get out of here. Like, she has zero she's interest not in her nice to him at all. She's like, get away from me. He's all rebuffed. He winds up going upstairs. And as he's going upstairs, who's coming downstairs? But Marceau, who now is working not outside, but now working inside as a member of the inside staff. And he's like, what? You're here? And he's all upset. And then Marceau comes. And what does Lisette do? sit next to me on her right side, just like they said, the impropriety of putting the lover on the right side. And she immediately mm -hmm. invites him to sit there. And you see them exchanging these glances and you realize that something's going to... Yeah, they weren't subtle about that no, either. No, something's <laughs> going to occur. Were... Then here's another shot coming up here as well that I, I wanted to mention about the deep focus when the upper class are going to bed. You have several of these shots where oh, they're the shooting hallway. all down the hall. Mm all the way down the hall this big long hallway and you have people in different areas of the hallway and you can see them all in focus so that's another good mm -hmm. place to yeah it's funny that those hallway scenes and even the whole i'm sure you're going to get to it but the where the play is happening and yes um the fet the fet is that what, that's what <laughs> i love it it feels like a farcical comedy yes like we're watching dumb and dumber yep. And it's that level of humor. Yep. But it feels so different in this film. I feel like it's not childish. It's not speaking down to me as a viewer. Right. And like, I do not like Dumb and Dumber. I don't like when I don't movies like do that to me. When there's these Benny Hill moments yeah. where the music's playing, everyone's running around like chaos. A chaos, yes. Yeah. And this is how comedy should be. Yeah. Glad the defocus allowed that because those scenes are you get to see all sorts of things. Yeah, and it was just that was like the first time I'm like, oh my god, I actually like that. Yeah, you should pay attention to a lot of those scenes because what you don't just look what's in the foreground because there's a lot of stuff happening in the background mm -hmm. that if you're not if you're just focusing on the stuff in the foreground when they're running around fighting and doing this and this and that, there's still stuff going on in the background that's also significant. Mm -hmm. So it's important to try to pay attention really closely in those scenes. It's it's very. It is very chaotic, very mm -hmm. carnival chaotic mess. Oh, so many movies do that yeah. technique, and it just not to this success. Yeah, the fet. Yes, we're mm -hmm. going to get to the fet soon. But first, we have my most hated, least favorite scene in this film. As a matter of fact, anybody that is triggered by death of animals should never watch oh, the, the hunting. scene. Yes, yeah, that was real. Should not watch the scene if you love animals. And you don't want to see them being shot on film mm -hmm. <laughs> and dying on film. <laughs> For the purposes of film. For filming, yes. So we're on to the hunting scene. You see a lot of the beauty of the nature in the beginning, which is, is really nice. So you see that area that is so beautiful. You notice one of the interesting things, Octave is one of the only ones without a gun at the hunt. Mm -hmm. What that means, I don't know. Men and women, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like one of the only upper class class people without a gun and there's one point he says to andre which is foreshadowing but we're not going to say why but he it is foreshadowing he says andre does something he says that's dangerous old man they're going to take us for the rabbits mm -hmm. and then what you have is the servants go out they're doing this thing where they're called beaters and they're mm -hmm. hitting the grass and the trees and they're flushing all the animals there's birds there's a lot mm -hmm. of rabbits they're flushing them all out to this clearing where everybody's standing in blinds with guns so mm -hmm. as soon as they come in they just psh, pick them off right you know hunting yeah, yeah, such, it, yeah it, exactly. Uh, it's Standing such a around, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. And this is apparently this is supposed to be sort of a statement on the senseless killing of things, which he also correlates with the war, perhaps coming just yeah. the senseless killing of things. Well, yeah, and it's also I, I see that for sure, and I also see it just as how absurd that 
film is not meant for the upper class. Film is meant for everyone to watch. Yeah. Most people in France, I would guarantee, I'm guessing, have never seen a hunt mm-hmm. from that perspective. In fact, I think when our view in Pennsylvania of what a hunt is is quite different than <laughs> what Europe has historically thought of a hunt, especially right. with foxes and animals. And, the, you know, when you have hundreds of people to support you yeah. to get the animal to the exact location you're yeah. trying to point your gun to, I yeah. think it's it takes it out of the context of love and puts it into another context. And it, it looks even more ridiculous yeah. of like, this is how this is what these people do. Yeah. And this is sport. Yeah, sport. That's the worst part about it. But yeah. That, well, yeah. I, I, and even if you are a local, like if you're a hunter and you're okay with that, this is not hunting. A lot of people that hunt, not everybody, but a lot of people that hunt around here, I think, they use the animal, they eat the meat, etc. It's different than what these people are doing. They're just flat out killing animals for fun. Yeah. I don't want to get on my hunting. <laughs> yeah, but the, I agree with you. That, yeah, that's, so, yeah that you, scene uh, is... is a, but the interesting thing about the hunting montage is, again, the fast editing, the cutting back and forth, cutting yeah, back and forth. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but it, wasn't, it yeah. was tense, and that makes and, sense and that's, that the fast that's editing what it would does. do it, The fast editing gives you tension, ramps up the tension and so mm-hmm. forth, but they said that hundreds of animals were killed during this scene. I'm not surprised, yeah. yeah. It's, those it's were Yeah, those were literally animals dying. And you're introducing... It, what was not previously introduced from into this frivolous sort of wealthy lifestyle now you're introducing a death component right yeah because it was all love fun and games and, and what's now, the harm now in we're that? dealing with death and it's like it's just the same frivolity just in a different context and it, it makes you see it differently yeah wasteful and so whatnot. yeah you've introduced a new elm element in here but after that's done you don't have any more of that fast editing you're right back to the regular style of film which is the long takes and the panning camera and, and all that is the focus yeah and they're still walking around in the forest they see a squirrel they're looking at it with some field glasses christine takes the field glasses she's looking around and what does she see Oops. she sees Robert and jean Eve. now she sees them in some sort of an embrace she thinks they're having some involvement but what they're really saying, Robert's finally saying, look, I don't want to be with you. I'm mm-hmm. done. I want to be with my wife. I need you to go away, basically. And she says, you know, well, just kiss me goodbye for the last time or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're doing. They're parting farewell. But she doesn't know that. She just sees them embracing and thinks, okay, you know, something's going on between them. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really do anything at that point. But they all wind up going back, and then you're back to the servants again. And Schumacher, it's sort of like both discovering at the same time because Schumacher discovers Marceau and Lisette together down in the kitchen. He's actually like holding her and stuff. So it's sort of like it cuts from one one of the pairs discovering to the other pair discovering. So again, mm-hmm. you're paralleling and you're mirroring. And you'll see another deep focus shot. Uh, you can see Schumacher actually coming through a window while Marceau and Lisette are in the close-up, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. He wants to fight him, and then the head butler or whatever comes in and says, leave the staff alone. They're trying to get ready for this party. They have a lot to do. Go back into the field. Yeah. And Lisette's like, yes, leave the staff alone. Like, she's just, <laughs> oh, I don't like her. Well, I mean, to be fair, if he was was your husband well, if he was- and that's the way he treated you what tried to keep me from sleeping with other men in a very controlling manip- well, in a very controlling you, you way you kind of expect that maybe he, he doesn't want his wife getting involved with other men i mean yeah never think- once did he sit down and be like why is she like this or why oh. is she not into me right now <laughs> That's not the issue. The issue was the other guys. Well, yeah. Not him and his relationship with his wife. Well, 
we could go on about yeah, why I'm cheating is cheating her. okay or yeah, is cheating no, not I'm, okay. I'm, is whose fault is it? I'm not defending cheating. I'm just for. I'm just more. I'm pro Lizette in this one. I'm anti Lizette. We're gonna. You and I are gonna have to fight about that later. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, so now this is when we get into our fet our little musical type play. When did they practice this extravagant <laughs> play with they costumes? Suddenly, and they suddenly... They, they were working on this for years who wrote I, this thing? They, they pulled yeah. it together quite well in a very short period yeah. of time. So I think before that happens, Christine does this interesting thing where she goes and talks to John Viev, and she doesn't know exactly what's going on with John Viev and Robert, but she does this sort of thing where she pretends, she's very deceptive. Mm-hmm. She gets her to admit things by pretending she already knows and then leaving little clues. Oh, don't you hate when Robert smokes in bed? And mm. then jean Viev thinks she's being honest and truthful and she's like, oh, she doesn't care. She doesn't mind. And she's like just telling her everything. And then Christine realizes, okay, they are really involved. And mm-hmm. now she now is when she starts to go off the rails. And when they do their little fat and they're having the show, at the end of the first little show, whatever they're doing, Jean Viev runs over and gives Robert a hug. And Christine gets infuriated and she runs off. That's when she runs off with... Random dude. San, <laughs> San Oban. Yeah, I'm like, who's this guy? San Oban. She just takes San Oban and runs off and then... She seems so excited. She was like... Not Andre, not this guy. Yes, I'm it's just going to take this guy. This guy. That's this who I've been keeping my own. Gossipy guy. Take the gossipy well, guy. Even before, even before the fet, though, she does make a comment to Jean, Jean, Jean Viev. Yeah, that she's going to she's going to have another. She has other men. She has other plans. Yeah. So was, I think she like changed her mind at that point. Opened up her mind, and yeah. she was just like, "Well, actually, I'm glad you're I'm here. Gonna, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. No, That's her. It's not a new attitude. But neither Andre nor Robert can go after her because they have to do their next little skit which mm-hmm. they're both in so they're doing their next skit and then the interesting part i think is when they start to do that dance macabre with the ghost and the skeleton the death that was a quite yeah. yeah that was good yeah it was really good but it's like a premonition here again you're, the death is in the scene again and then this is another one where while they're doing all these things you really need to look in the background because there's all this stuff going on in the background mm. while people are watching the show at this point Schumacher is trying to keep Lisette away from Marceau so he's running around chasing her holding on to her yeah and, um, then, and Christine runs off with San Oban and then and Octavio keeps on running to everyone yeah Octavio he's running around trying to get this he has this bear skin on he's running around trying to ask everybody to take the bear skin off and both christine and andre don't help him both mm-hmm. of his two friends and then finally jean viev helps him but she's in the room with robert again robert's trying to escape her and when he comes she helps him with the bear suit then robert is, is able to escape then he runs into the hall and <laughs> that's when everything is going crazy at this point schumacher is chasing marceau and he sees marceau and he he tries to help marceau and get him away from Schumacher. He tries Schumacher get out of here, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just a very chaotic part. Oh, my favorite line in the movie happened right at there was when Robert went to the lead servant and said, like, I need you to put an end to this. To this, yeah. and he, oh, to this farce. And he was like, which one, sir? <laughs> it was just such a subtle thing, yeah, but it was funny. Because everything is going awry. Yeah. Then then it gets even more dramatic because Andre humor. starts fighting San Oban over Christine. They start end up getting in a fist fight. Andre comes in. He sees San Oban with Christine. Yeah, San Oban. I mean, let's talk about him for I just want to talk, <laughs> Let's talk about that. That relationship consisted of her getting a little drunk, getting really excited about him, like ignoring all her 
first suitors be like, no, this is the one I want to be with. Running and their entire relationship was him saying, no, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Not to her, but like to everyone yes, who kept on intruding they kept on coming, People kept coming yeah. in the room. So their entire relationship <laughs> consists of them not even... There was no relationship. No. That was it. And then he fights over her. <laughs> yeah. Andre comes in and starts fighting him. And that was a mistake. San Oban gets beaten up. Yeah. He has to be attended to by some of the ladies. Yeah, and he loses in this whole situation. Yeah. It's just a big mess. And again, like the same time, Marceau and Schumann share are chasing each other. And then this is when Robert presents that big toy, that big musical toy, whatever mm-hmm. that is. The Luminaire, I think is called. Mm-hmm. That shot that you really like where he's so proud proud of his mm-hmm. thing and he's showing everybody and then it, again you're back into all the chaos Schumann Cher actually starts shooting at Marceau oh, this is the ar- Benny Hill moment yeah around the guests yeah. you know all the guests are there and he's just out there with his gun and the guests think is this part of anywhere. the show is it not part of the show yeah yeah but the guests are like what's going on is mm-hmm. this part of the fete what's happening yeah I wonder if it was a little prelude to the fact that everyone knew the war was coming and everyone's just like, what's going on? Yeah. The French society's like, huh? There's a war? No. It's, it's something happening? Are there guns around us? Yeah. I'm rich. I don't have to participate yeah, in that, no, right? We can just ignore this nonsense. Mm-hmm. And as Schumacher is chasing Marceau around the house, Robert sees Christine with Andre. He's just kind of holding on to her. Nothing's really happening at this point. He's just kind of clinging on to her. Obviously, things haven't worked out with Oban, so now she's like, Andre, you! It's been, it's been a whole 20 yeah, minutes. Uh, how about you instead? Yeah. And he's holding on to her, and then Robert begins to fight with Andre, so then they're mm-hmm. getting in a fist fight, and then Christine <laughs> runs off with Octave, so mm-hmm. now she's... This is her third guy within but she says, a very short span. I love you. Let's run away together. And he says, I need to speak with your husband. Well, that was Andre. Yeah, Andre. Yeah, Andre, yeah we, we yeah, forgot yeah. that part. He's suddenly, all of a sudden, he's not the romantic hero anymore. He's almost like a member of the upper class. We have to observe the proprieties. And Christine's like, no, I don't want that. Oh, yeah. He said, he shook my hand, so I have to give him the respect yeah. and tell him face to face. And she expected him to just sweep her off her feet and run away because that's what he was and she says something later we don't see this but she said that he wanted to bring her to her mother's for a month before to let things settle yeah before they could be lovers yeah and she's like ah that's yeah, not no, where I was going with no. this. <laughs> so she realized that now Andre and Robert are fighting, and she's like, well, he's not working out either, so I'm going to take Octave, and we're going to go off. Who's she the went- only one who's excited about this? <laughs> oh, this is why he's the coolest. <laughs> Poor Octave. I know. He's but the he's fool. like now number one, two, what is he, the third, fourth, fourth choice? Yeah, yeah, fourth. Yeah, and this is then Shimon Cher is, is firing at everybody, and a bullet goes into the lamp near where Andre and Robert are fighting, and they're like, oh, wait, wait, we better stop fighting. Somebody is shooting, and John John Viev is also in there. She runs up to Robert. She's like, when are we going to go away together? And he's like, this is not the time. And he like flips out. And then you cut to Christine and Octave. They're outside reminiscing about their younger days. And her father was a concert pianist or concert conductor or something mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it occurs to octave he's pretending he's he's conducting a concert or whatever he's doing and then he realizes that like his life is kind of a failure and he's going nowhere and he sits down on the steps and he gets real depressed and it's like the first time you really see octave show that kind of emotion or that side mm-hmm. he always seems like he's putting on a big front for yeah, everybody a else yeah mm-hmm. a jester that is a good that is a good word for him 
And back inside, Robert has to fire Schumacher because he's literally shooting up at the yeah, guests. I mean, I would fire him over yeah, that, too. Yeah, he gets fired. But then he says, yeah, I got to fire you, too, Marceau, because I can't leave you here in the house with his wife. That wouldn't be proper. Yeah. Not the fact that he was in this fight or he no. was involved with the gun battle. <laughs> Not at all. That was the issue. No, it's the rule that the servant can't stay with the wife of the other servant. So. Yeah, you got to keep those rules. And then all of a sudden, Robert and Andre are now besties. They're mm-hmm. hanging out together. Oh, we better go find where. Christine, let's go find her. What's going on? And then as Schumann Cher is cast out of the house and he's sitting in the garden crying, he's actually crying. And Marceau comes upon him and sees him crying and now they're best. So everybody's mm-hmm. become besties. Andre and Robert are besties and Marceau and Schumann Cher are now besties. And everybody's happy except Christine and Octave are sitting in the greenhouse talking about how they should run off together. Now she's decided Octave is the person she mm-hmm. wants to run off with. It's about time. She loves him now. It so took this her is long enough. like I said, the fourth man or whatever she's loved in a very short period of time. And she'd been wearing Lisette's cloak that Schumann Cher had given mm-hmm. her because Lisette didn't want her to be cold. Well, out come Marceau and Schumann Cher from the woods and they see Octave and they see a lady in a cloak and they both automatically assume it's Lisette. And Marceau's like, You better go get your gun. You better shoot this guy. Egan That was Cher unexpected off. coming from him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Because Cher says, I'll shoot them both. And he yeah. says, no, no, not her, not her. Marceau says, don't shoot her. Yeah. Just him. And he says it twice. And he's like, I'm shooting them both. Because, you know, he's all about propriety. I'm going to shoot them both, not mm-hmm. just one of them. But I don't think we should say anything else because we will ruin the film. Oh, about, and if we yes. leave it here, you will have to see what happens because we have certainly left it open-ended. Mm-hmm. Anything could happen at this point. <laughs> So what is your views on Lisette then? Let's get let's get right to her. On Lisette. Yeah, because I... You like her. I, I don't like, like her. her. I like the actress that played her. I, I mean, don't like her character. I think her character is really self-centered. And I don't and even there, think... And there wasn't one in this film that wasn't self-centered? Maybe Octave wasn't as self-centered as the rest of them. He seemed to want to actually help people. Maybe. Yeah. He'd probably be the only one I'd point to. Everybody's very self-centered. But I just, I don't even think she, she doesn't like any of these men. She wants to, Mm. her her goal is to just stay with Madame and be this maid of the great lady. I I think that's her whole, I don't care for her. Like you said, Robert is probably my favorite character in the film. I really Mm -hmm. was drawn to him more than anybody else in the film. Yeah. I I guess I liked Lizette because she was just about, she didn't care about any of the rules. No. She just cared about having fun herself. Yeah. And she did it in a way that it didn't harm anyone. Well. They harmed themselves. I don't think she must share. I mean, I think it was kind of hurtful to her husband that she was having affairs with multiple men. Well, I think I, from my gathering from this film, this is France. I mean, this was seemed to be pretty normal. But yeah, but Schumann Cher didn't seem to think so. But he's he's from Alsace. He's German. Oh, well, see, that's I mean, the that's, problem. Yeah, so, like, I mean, Alsace-Lorraine is, like... Yeah, you'll ger- notice it's the French people that are having the affairs. Yeah, because, like, the don't outsiders, forget... outsiders, because Christine is Austrian. She's Austrian, and he's he's pretty much German. And Octave is, is Austrian. Is he? Didn't they come from Salzburg together? No, I think he's French. I think he went to Salzburg to study with her father, oh. if I remember the story correctly. You might be right. Yeah. He had no qualm with running away with a married woman. True. So True. Well, apparently four or five men felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> Why was she so wanting? She was so boring. She was just like, get me out of this house, somebody. Yeah. I don't care who it is. Like if I was putting myself in that shoes, if I was part of this game, 
that's not who I would go after. I guess she was. She, she wore all white. She was like this innocent. She was virtuous. Vir, yeah, this innocent virtuous, virtuous bird. Yeah. So I think she just didn't know what to do. I think she was just no, emotional, acting society. crazy. She doesn't know what to do. You know, she, I think she's trying to be like the French. She's trying to get back at her husband, but you know, she just doesn't know how to properly do it. And mm-hmm. I don't think she really wants to do it. I think the thing is, she doesn't really want any of these men. She's just doing things on the spur of the moment out of desperation. Mm-hmm. But we should probably talk real quick about what happened when this film was shown in France. Oh, yeah. So, that was fun to read about. I did put a little research onto the reception because I was curious. And side note, important thing is this film was lost and it was rediscovered in the 50s? 1956. 1956. Okay. And it wasn't the original cut, but it was close enough. And Renoir himself... They restored negatives that they had found, negative prints, duplicated prints, and sound mixes of the film. They didn't have the original negative because they believed that was destroyed in a blitz on the film studio that was housing it. Mm-hmm. So they think the original one was destroyed, but they found these negative prints, duplicated prints, and sound mixes and they sort of cobbled them all together in a restoration because what had originally happened was when he displayed the film in France people went absolutely ballistic like when you talk about disliking a film they didn't just walk out of the film they were booing they were hissing men were trying to light the theaters on fire mm-hmm. I mean it was very extreme reaction I love it yeah, like if perfect. It, it's lucky they didn't start throwing stuff at him literally they were berserk so he and it's got banned too um, it got banned he had mm-hmm. to cut the film down he tried to remove all the stuff that he thought they thought was offensive. So it was 113 minutes to begin with. He cut it all the way down to 85 minutes trying to get rid of what he thought was upsetting people. And they still banned the film anyway. Mm -hmm. And then when they found the prints that you were talking about, they actually were able to cobble together almost the entire original film except for one scene. They said everything but one scene. And they said that when they played it for Renoir, he actually cried because it was so close to his actual film. That's cool. What was the one scene? Do you know? He said it was some sexual liaison with one of the maids Mm. his character had and he didn't consider it a very important part of the film Mm. just a silly part but he said that was the only scene they couldn't find the rest of it was intact as he Mm -hmm. had originally shot it so yeah they banned it then they figured after world war ii they try to show it again so they premiered it again in 1945 they re-released it and then they banned it again (laughs) which is funny because i always thought french cinema was so proud of itself that it could make fun of being french Mm. Well, I that, that maybe was, like was the wrong time to yeah. make fun of France when they were having a very patriotic feeling about themselves. Yeah, Renoir said he made this knowing that the war was coming up. And right. this was his know. take on that. But this film made me feel better about the world because... Everyone knows when a war is coming like that. I don't know what that's like. I've no. never experienced luckily, it. I never want for us. to. But I can only imagine, especially being French, because think about France lost... A significant number of people oh, yeah. in World War One, Yeah. And especially on the Western Front where the border didn't move. So France itself was, you didn't see the war in France the way they did in World War Two. They saw the war. But in France, they didn't see the war. It was halted at a certain point on the Western Front. So if you were in Paris, Paris was Paris. Yeah. It was fine. So I'm guessing you know, the upper society. They maybe society, thought it wasn't going to come into France. Yeah. It was yeah. like they just kind of went on, on their business. But right. so many people died in World War One. I. I imagine the people of France were exhausted and oh, yeah. bewildered and could not even believe that this could be happening again from the same people who right. did it True. 20 years before.
more. And then the French upper class, I'm guessing, were exhausted too, that they're just like, we're not even going to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could see why they might Mm -hmm. feel that way, to be honest. It's weird. It's almost like a call of arms in its own way. If you think about if Renoir was trying to say, hey, France. Pay attention. This is where we're at. Yeah. Look what's going on around you. And Germany just walked into France. So it was like. Yeah, that's a shame. I don't know. That's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, no, that's great. But here at Silver Screen Time Machine, we do do a rating system. Okay. So as the guest, you get to rate first. It's between one and five. What is your rating for this film? The is rules of the game. Five good or five. Five bad? is the best. One. Okay. one I liked it. I'm, I'm going to go all in. Four point nine. <laughs> Whoa. So because one, it's great. I hear about this film all the time. It's on yeah. all these lists. It was a comedy. When do you ever see comedies nominated for Oscars or anything like that? Yeah. Comedies. Well, how they couldn't possibly have given this an Oscar. It was never even allowed to be out in the public to be <laughs> seen go. by anybody. But it's funny. It's really yeah. well done. And it it's entertaining. It's timeless. It's good. Yeah. I mean, is it thought-provoking, like do the right thing or something like that? No, absolutely not. It's a humoristic look at a societal critique from yeah. something that we can't relate to in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. It's beautifully shot. It's really well acted. Christine, I'm not sure as much of her as an actor. I really liked Robert. I thought he was very good. I actually thought Renoir acted really well yeah. in his part. I thought he did a really great job. He did. I thought most of the other actors were very good. I love the cinematography in the film. I love all the trick shots, the deep focus, all those pioneering techniques they were using. It was very impressive. I don't like the hunting scene, and I'm going to penalize it heavily for that. So the logistics of the hunting I scene, give it, I the give reality it, of it. Both of them. Both Mm -hmm. seeing it on film and the fact that these animals were killed. I Mm -hmm. cannot give it anything higher than a four, which is high anyway. But Mm -hmm. yeah, four. Okay. Four is pretty much one of my upper echelons of films. Mm -hmm. So like I said, the rest of the film is good enough to take it up to a four, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Does it make you want to watch more of his work or does it like... I would probably like to watch something else of his if they wouldn't avoid the animal killing in it. Yes. I'm not sure. I don't think he has it in every film, I'm guessing. But yeah. Yeah. I have to confess that my French film repertoire is not as good as other things like Italian films or German films. So Mm -hmm. I could watch more French films, I think. Yeah, I don't like French New Wave. I'm I just don't gonna, either. I'm just going to say it. But French crime films and modern French films are really yeah. amazing. There's a lot of good stuff. Well, you just showed a great French film at the Row House that I just introduced, oh, The Passion uh, of Joan of Arc. Passion, that is not that a modern amazing. one. That was a that, that was amazing. An older one. I've yet to see it. I need to. Oh, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Especially, it was beautiful to see in the theater. That was the same time Charles Lindbergh flew across the oh, Atlantic there we as go. opposed to... As opposed to Andre. <laughs> yeah. However you say his last name, Joe... I'm not even trying to say it again. I got through all the French names. I'm done with the, yeah. done with the French Isn't names. Isn't it amazing how like that was probably the pioneer film of that decade Certainly. and then this is just 10 years later this film came out yeah and how different things were from uh yeah the, from that's filmmaking. what's beautiful about the history of film is that you have all these pioneering films year after year after year because they're learning something new they're getting new technology they're doing more innovations and it's like a whole progression of innovations and in technology in film that nowadays we have we have some technological mm-hmm. advances but it's not like every year somebody's coming out with something new this is also the same year we had color for the first time too actually he tried to get this film in technicolor and they wouldn't let him jerks 
Yeah, he wanted to shoot this film in color. Mm. Nobody would finance it. He asked the American Technicolor, can we borrow your cameras or whatever it was that you used to do the Technicolor? Mm. And they turned them down. Would have been interesting. So anyhow, it's yeah. getting a little late on this one, but thank you. I really appreciate, Brian, you being our guest today. Thank mm. you so much. Yeah, I yeah. uh, appreciate being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Don't forget to go out to the Row House and check out their films there. And for Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review, this is Wendy saying goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And please leave us a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Intro and outro music composed by Heidi Engel. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick. Recorded at PCTV Studios, Pittsburgh, PA. See you next time. Yeah.